It's great to be with you this morning. It's just wonderful just to worship with you, and I want to encourage you as a a church, um, a great church of worship and of prayer. I just want to encourage you in that. You know, when we worship God, um, we can change the spiritual atmosphere in a place, and as God's people, we just come to him in worship and worship him in spirit and in truth. So thank you for the worship this morning. I'm not too sure whether um, I've got any wisdom to offer you, but what I have, I'm happy to share with you. But we've had some great stories this morning of how God is working in your lives. In some ways, um, I think I could just go home and just um, rejoice in the stories and the testimonies that I've heard this morning. I guess um, it was wonderful for Dory and I to be here a few weeks ago when you enjoyed um, that baptismal service. What a wonderful service that was. Um, I think of um, Brad and Daniel and David, the three guys getting baptised. You know, it's a real encouragement to see people taking steps of faith and going on with the Lord. You know, I think that that's an encouragement to us as individuals, to those who are being baptised and for the church as a whole. And I guess for Dory and I, um, it was extremely precious to be here when our grandson, our eldest grandson, Daniel, was um, baptised. I guess as grandparents, it's a special time just to see that Christian legacy of faith being imparted to a new generation. And we were so moved to see um, that baptismal service. So it's great to be here this morning and just um, to be sharing with you as a fellowship. You know, baptisms can sort of like have their challenges. I don't know whether you know about this, but they can. At our previous church, um, there was a lady by the name of Kathleen. Um, she was 60 years of age, a lot older than most of you here. Um, she came from a Roman Catholic background, and she was a lovely lady who loved the Lord, and she desperately wanted to get baptized, but she had a fear of water. And that can be a real fear a fear of water. In fact, her fear was so evident that she was really fearful of putting her head under the water. She was petrified of that. And so I spent quite a a little bit of time just encouraging her and praying with her, going to her place and, and virtually acting out what would happen in the baptism. And so um, one week, she would say, oh, I'm going to be baptised. Next week, it was all too hard. And I'd pray with her again and say, come on, Kathleen, you can do this. You know, God will give you not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. And so on the day when she was to be baptised, she was all excited, a bit tentative. And I said, it's okay, Kathleen, I'll be with you. But more important, God will be with you. So she came down the steps into the baptistry. I was holding her hand and she was gripping onto mine. She kneeled in front of me and here I am as the pastor of the church and about to baptise this lady. I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son. And as I was saying that and trying to gently lower her head under the water, holding her hand with one hand and my hand on her head, I all of a sudden realised that as I was going down, that my head was under the water and I was looking at Kathleen going, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) 
And so things happen when you baptise people. Believe me, I've had lots of experience of that. I think she was baptised in the Holy Spirit. I was baptised a second time. I don't know whether that's biblical, but I was baptised a second time. Although the shortest of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark contains the most events. It is action-packed, really action-packed. You know, you get a sense that Jesus is moving from one challenging situation to another. One minute he's driving out a demonic evil spirit out of a person. And the next minute he's healing Peter's mother-in-law. Mark presents a rapid succession of vivid pictures which indicates Jesus in action. His true identity, that is Jesus' true identity, isn't seen by much by what he's saying, but more by what he's actually doing. This is Jesus on the move. Jesus on the move. I guess as you've studied the book of Mark um, over recent times, you might have noticed how Mark uses the word immediately. In chapter 1, the very first chapter of Mark's gospel, he uses the word immediately three times. Immediately, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Immediately, Jesus left the synagogue. For Mark, there is a real sense of urgency in his narrative. And the Greek word for our word immediately, in the whole of the New Testament, occurs 62 times. And 41 of those times it is seen in Mark's gospel. 41 of those times is seen in Mark's gospel. And so we come to Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration from the mountain to the mountain place, marketplace, from the mountain to the marketplace. Just going to invite Dory just to come and read from Mark chapter 9. Thank you. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to them, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no, no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? He said. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. A little later, Jesus had gone indoors with his disciples private, and they asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Thanks, Dory. Wow, what a day. This was no ordinary day. The word of God says that after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led him up to a high mountain. For these three disciples, this was a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop experience. It's interesting as we read Mark that he mentions the passing of six days. And I wonder if Mark's deliberately drawing our attention to Exodus chapter 24. When Moses went up onto the mountain, Exodus 24 says, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on the mount. And for six days, for six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. You know, it's not uncommon for Jesus to take Peter, James and John aside. You may recall as you've studied the book of Mark that they had the privilege of being in the room with Jesus when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And later, as you read through the book of Mark, you will see that these three disciples, Peter, James and John, this inner circle, this core group of disciples, had the privilege of being with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's account of the Transfiguration, we read that Jesus went up to the mountain specifically to pray. Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And it was as he was praying that the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became dazzling white. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. Moses representing the law. Elijah, a preeminent prophet. Both had experiences of meeting God on a mountain and both had departed this earth in miraculous circumstances. Moses' body was never found. And the word of God assumes that God took Moses. And Elijah was removed from this earth in a, a chariot of fire, both miraculously removed from this earth. And here they are, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus. It was as Jesus was praying that he was transfigured and that transfiguration went before them. The word transfigured comes from our word metamorphosis and is used to describe the change a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. It literally means a change on the outside that comes from the inside. A change on the outside that comes from the inside. And the Apostle Paul uses this same term, this same word, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
Do not be conformed, the Apostle Paul says, any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewing of your mind. Jesus was transformed in the presence of Peter, James and John. To be conformed is to have the external change the internal. To be conformed, to be transformed, is to have the internal change the external. And my brothers and sisters, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be transformed. We need to have the Holy Spirit change us, not from the outside, but change us from the inside out, radically changed. We need to be transformed. And for a brief moment, on this mountain, Peter, James and John were allowed. They were allowed to see the glory of Christ. The glory of God was housed inside a human body. The mountaintop experience led these disciples into a revelation of Jesus' glory. It led these disciples into a revelation of Jesus' glory. The glory of Jesus that was concealed in the manger is now revealed on the mountain. The glory of Jesus that was concealed in the manger is now revealed on the mountain. And for a brief moment, the veil of Jesus' humanity is lifted and his glory shines through. Jesus' true transformation, it didn't happen on the mountain. It actually happened at the incarnation when Jesus took on human form. That's where his transformation took place. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippian church, states this, that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus, the Son of God, took on the nature of a servant. And Paul goes on to say in Philippians, Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus took on the nature of a servant. But Paul says that there will be that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that at this moment Jesus is being worshipped? He is being worshipped in heaven. And when we worship here on earth, we join with the angels and the elders in heaven and worship Jesus. You know, my friends, um, I think we so often limit our understanding of Jesus. We see Jesus as our friend. We see him as our companion, 
our guide, our provider, our healer. And he is all of those things. He is all of those things. But sometimes we forget and we fail to get a glimpse of Jesus, the one who is glorified. We fail to glimpse the glory of Jesus, the one who is now lifted up, who is highly exalted. You know, it's interesting to note that the Apostle John, who is referred to in Scripture as the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was so close to Jesus on this earth, But when the Apostle John had a vision and a revelation on the island of Patmos and he saw Jesus, my friends, he didn't go up and hug him. He fell down on his face as if he was dead and he worshipped him. He fell down and worshipped Jesus. Why? Because he saw the risen, exalted Lord. He saw the glorified Jesus. And we need to get a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. Pastor John Piper defines the glory of God as the holiness of God made manifest. The holiness of God made manifest. In the book of Isaiah in chapter 3 and um, in chapter 6 verse 3, we get a picture of the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the next thing they say is that the earth is full of his, and you would think they would say holiness. The earth is full of his holiness. But they don't. They say the earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the earth is full of of his glory. The glory of the Lord is all around us. (laughs) We just don't see it. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We just don't recognize it sometimes. Years ago, I read a book um, by John White entitled, um, When the Spirit Comes. He came to his church and he he pastored and he said um, to them, he said, I saw and experienced a wonderful miracle this morning. Oh, what happened, Pastor? Did somebody get healed? No, no. I saw the sun rise. The glory of God is all around us. But sometimes we're so busy we don't recognize it. When we get a glimpse of God's glory, we get a glimpse of his holiness, his infinite perfection his infinite greatness, his infinite worth. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy States, but the cause that the, it states that the, because we have so many spiritual challenges and the reason why we have so many spiritual challenges in the church today is because we have lost a lofty concept of God. He argues that the cure for this lies in our rediscovery of God's majesty. Our rediscovery of God's majesty. And I think for all of us in the Church of Jesus Christ, we continually need a fresh revelation 
of the glory of Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. You know, the disciples didn't fully understand all of this on the mountain of transfiguration. So Peter, as he always does, does, he had a good suggestion for them. Why don't we build three shelters? As if Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all equally important. But Peter, he might have been reflecting on the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus 23, where the Israelites lived in shelters for seven days in remembrance of God's guidance and protection in the desert. Maybe Peter just wanted to prolong this experience. You know, for us as Christians, we always want to prolong the spiritual mountaintop experience. But Mark tells us that Peter said this because he was frightened. While Peter was talking, a cloud appeared representing the glory of God, the Shehinah glory, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Here we see God the Father affirming Jesus' identity. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Firstly, there is a revelation of Jesus' glory given to disciples. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there is a revelation of Jesus' identity. Of Jesus' identity. We immediately are reminded of Jesus' baptism when we hear these words. For Jesus' baptism in Mark's Gospel a voice from, came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus' identity was central to who he was as a person. And Jesus always ministered to people out of his intimate relationship with God the Father. John's Gospel reminds us that the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father do, doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does. Jesus' ministry didn't define him. Jesus' ministry didn't define him. His identity wasn't found in what he did. It wasn't found in what he did. Rather, it was found in who he was, the Son of God. The miracles and the healings, wonderful that we've heard this morning, praise God for them, didn't make Jesus the Son of God. The miracles and healing didn't make Jesus the Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God because he was God's son. His ministry was only reflecting what God's character was. I am the Lord who heals, the word of God says. And so Jesus reflected God's character and brought healing into people's lives. And my friends, 
if our identity this morning is found in my sorry my friends if our identity is found in what we do for god we will quickly move into a place of bondage bondage to our own desires for perfection and achievement bondage so other people might accept us bondage to other people's expectation jesus's ministry flowed out of his identity with god the father a few days later or a few days before we read in mark's gospel where peter declares that jesus was the christ the son of the living god and here on the mount god the father is affirming jesus's identity and just as jesus's identity was central to who he was as a person and to his ministry our identity in christ is foundational to our relationship with jesus and our discipleship our identity in christ is foundational to our relationship with jesus and our discipleship and my friends this morning i just have that sense from god during the week that god wants to affirm our identity in christ he wants to affirm our identity in christ he wants to declare over you that you are his son that you are a daughter of god and that he loves you with an everlasting love the god that calls you by name has your name engraved on the palm of his hands isaiah tells us your name is engraved on the palm of jesus's hands jesus's ministry right now and forever is praying for you he is the great high priest sometimes we forget that but while we are interceding and praying for other people we forget that jesus the one who is glorified and exalted is praying for us and friends he has your name on the palm of his hands and inscribed on his heart and as he is interceding before the father he is calling you by name he knows the very number of hairs that are upon your head and he loves you he loves you He knows you intimately. He knows what you're thinking. I wish this guy would stop. He's gone on so long. He knows what you're feeling. He knows your failings. He knows you intimately. And yet he still loves you. You know he won't love you any more today than he would at any other time. God's love is constant. It doesn't fluctuate like ours. God's love is constant. He loves you with an everlasting love. The apostle John says, "How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we, that you and I should be called sons and daughters of the living God." I don't know about you, but I often identify with the apostle Peter. 
you know, don't give him a hard time. People say, oh, Peter, you know, he speaks before he thinks. You know, if only he'd kept his eyes on Jesus when he was walking on the water. You know, he had lack of faith. But I say, Peter was the only guy who got out of the boat. <laughs> Where were the other disciples? I'd rather be like Peter. But I identify with Peter. Sometimes I say things and I think, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I could have said that better. Sometimes I do things and I fail and I stuff up. And I think, boy, you know, you're hopeless, Mick. Where is our identity placed? We um, worship at New Peninsula Baptist Church and um, some time ago um, I was praying with some of the elders on the platform at our church for our senior pastor, David, and his wife, Marion. And I was laying hands on them and the elders and we were praying around them and I was praying that God would be their provider, that God would be their Jehovah Jireh. And I had a mental blank. Jehovah, uh, uh, Jehovah Jireh, three times I tried to say Jehovah Jireh. There's about 600 people on this, in this auditorium and I'm on the platform and some of the elders behind me were, Mick, it's Jehovah Jireh, three times. And I thought to myself, Lord, will you just open up the ground and take me now? How embarrassing that I can't pronounce Jehovah Jireh. And I said to myself, you know, I'm not going to pray anymore. That's it. I'm too old for this. I forget things. I stumble over words. I'm not going to do this anymore. Where is our identity? You know, we all fail. We all stuff up. At our previous church um, a number of years ago, um, I had a phone call from the Salvation Army major and he said, Mick, I was wondering if um, we could use your church to baptise one of our congregation. I said, oh, that would be wonderful. But I want to tell you I won't be around because we're going up to Hillsong for a conference. But what I'll do is I'll organise everything and you come on Sunday at 3 o'clock and it will, will be done. So I tapped somebody on the shoulder. I said, after the service on Sunday, could you fill the baptistry with water? Not a problem. I saw our sound people, like Brad at the back there, and I said, would you mind just leaving the mic set up and the sound system all set up and, um, and um, so that um, the Salvation Army, when they come, they'll have everything there. I saw another person and said, after the service, would you mind just straightening up the chairs and picking up any papers so that when these guys come, They'll have a, a welcoming space. So we went on to Hillsong, had a wonderful time. A bit like um, our brother over here got pumped up in the Lord, you know, <laughs> leadership, empowerment. I came back and I thought, I'll just give um, my friend at the Salvation Army a ring. And so I picked up the phone and said, um, just, just ringing and um, wondering how the baptism went. There was a bit of a hesitation at the other end of the phone. He said, um, Mick, um, uh, we, we got at the church, to your church at three o'clock and, um, and we waited and we waited and nobody came to let us in. I had forgotten to ask somebody to be there at three o'clock to open the doors of the church. Everything inside the church was okay and these guys were outside. He said, it's okay. We went down to the beach and we baptised a person down the beach. Praise the Lord for that. 
But in July, that's a bit chilly. It's a bit chilly. But I've just felt so sick in myself. You call yourself a pastor. You call yourself a leader of the church. And look, you can't even organize a baptismal service. You know, we all do stuff like that. We all stuff up. And we see ourselves as failures. We see ourselves captive to the past, thinking nothing will change. We have low self-esteem. Sin. The devil has a field day in our minds and says, you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ? <laughs> You're not a disciple. A disciple wouldn't do that. And when that happens, my friend, we need to take the word of God and we need to stand on God's word and on God's promises. Not on what you're feeling, not on what other people are saying, not on the expectation of other people, but on God's word. Renew our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You this morning are a daughter and son of Jesus Christ if you love the Lord. He loves you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of love and of sound mind. The word of God needs to transform us internally. You know, um, I carry this little card around with me and it's in my Bible all the time. And it's just entitled, Who I Am in Christ. And it has a series of Bible verses. I am accepted in Jesus Christ. I am secure in Jesus Christ. I am significant in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that. God is saying that to you. And when you and I don't believe that, we are calling God a liar. God says, I love you. You are special. You are significant. You are secure in me. I have accepted you. Believe God's word. Hold on to God's word. Ask the Spirit of God to impart it into our lives. I'm going to close here. I, I've got more I wanted to say, but you've heard enough talking. And it's not me saying these things. It's God saying those things over us. I've been on this faith journey for longer than a lot of you have been alive. I've been on this faith journey for 50 years. I came out from the UK. I came to the Lord the first week of arriving in this country, not knowing anybody. And God had transformed me in a miraculous way. I've been a pastor for 20 years. But even in myself, there's a struggle with identity, as our brother here is saying. And we need to be vulnerable in this place. We need to put our hands up and say, hey, I'm struggling here. And allow the body of Christ to come around about us and support us and encourage us. That's what the body of Christ is all about. I was called as a pastor from within the church that we attended. And for many, many years I thought, well, I'm not really a pastor. I've always had a pastoral heart, but I'm not really a pastor because I don't have an ordination. 
I don't have an ordination, so I'm not really a pastor. And we beat ourselves up. I went to a vineyard conference once and they just invited <coughs> pastors out for prayer. This Canadian girl came up, placed her hand on my, show, on my head, asked God to minister into my pastoral heart and anoint me. And for the next two hours, I was on the floor on the floor, and the Spirit of God ministered powerfully to me. And I got up from that space knowing that God had called me into pastoral ministry, not because of an ordination, but sensing God's hand upon me. And for each of us, we just sometimes hear words from other people, and it goes in one ear and goes out the other, but it doesn't. Get inside of us. It doesn't touch our hearts. It doesn't transform us. And the Spirit of God can do that. Believe me. I know I'm a son of God. <laughs> you can know that you are a son or a daughter of God. Not perfect. Don't come under the spirit of perfection or trying to achieve. You know, I see so many pastors, but they work so hard at keeping their church together that they've forgotten their identity, who they are in Christ. And at the end of the day, they burn out. Some of them no longer walking with the Lord. You know, this is not an effort when we know who we are in Christ. It should be a joy. We of all people should rejoice in our identity. And where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Take hold of that freedom, brothers and sisters. Don't go down the path of bondage, but take hold of that freedom and bless you as you do that.